If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis, and we're going to start out in Genesis 15. I told someone else Genesis 12, but it's actually Genesis 15. And let me also say, I, I referenced it in the prayer. We did, uh, Jerry Bennett on Thursday evening went home to be with the Lord. Uh, she sang in the choir. She was a big part of the church and so many other uh, parts of the church, and we will miss her greatly. Her family is doing well. I pray that you're praying for them. We will have services here, it looks like, this coming Saturday right here in the auditorium, Saturday at 11 o'clock. Um, again, please be in prayer for Jim and the rest of the family. We're talking about the organic God. Uh, if you took all of the, the things that we have, we have put on him, if, if you took away all of the, the stuff that we've created uh, around God and stripped God down to who he really is, who he always has been, what he has revealed himself uh, in Scripture, that's what we're looking at. And I've, I've titled this this week, Unbelievably Stubborn. The organic God is unbelievably stubborn. Now, have you ever known a stubborn person? You ever know someone that was a little stubborn? Now, I, I ran across this quote, uh, a politician who said, stubborn isn't a word I would use to describe myself. Pig-headed is more appropriate. Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, who took away my 44-ounce sodas if I go to New York, he called himself, he, he said it, not me. So here's another quote, a tennis champion. Try to imagine a tennis champion that would say this. To be a tennis champion, you have to be inflexible. You have to be stubborn. You have to be arrogant. You have to be selfish and self-absorbed. Have you ever heard of any tennis champion say something like that? Some of you are thinking it's John McEnroe, aren't you? That's, that's exactly who you thought it was. Seven grand slams. You know who said that? Chris Everett. She won 18 grand slam titles, and yet when someone asked her to describe herself, that's what she said. I looked up the word stubborn in the dictionary. I didn't, I didn't do this without thinking it through. Stubborn, here's what Webster says. First definition, firm or determined, st stubborn. Second definition, not easily controlled like a stubborn fever. That was the example. That, have you ever had someone had a stubborn fever, gave them aspirin, it didn't do anything? And the third one is done in a willful, persistent manner. Look at what Numbers 23 says. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is unbelievably stubborn in all of the positive ways. It does not have the negative connotations that we put on it, but God is stubborn. God is stubborn to do what he wants to do, what he's promised to do, what he's, what he's pledged to do, what he gives us to do. We need a fresh glimpse of who God is. And his stubborn character and his stubborn purpose in his life, in, in, in our life. We need to see him again as, as stubbornly just, as stubbornly righteous or holy, as stubbornly compassionate, as, as stubbornly truthful, as stubbornly loving. That's who God is. And I want to examine this as we look at the life of Abraham for just a few minutes. And we're going to look at, first of all, God's character never changes. God God's character is a stubborn character because it's always the same. Now, we change, but God does not. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 15. We're going to look at the first six verses. Uh, this is a story of Abram and Sarah. We're kind of picking up it in, in the middle because God has already promised Abram 10 years before this that they would have a son. 10 years have gone by. It's not happened. Pick it up in, in chapter 15, verse 1. 
It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Why would God say, don't be afraid? Why does God normally say, don't be afraid? Because you're terrified. You know, all the angels come when Jesus is born, and it says the sky exploded with angels, and they say, don't be afraid. If your sky explodes with angels, I'm pretty much saying, don't be afraid is the first thing you need to hear. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord. Adonai, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. This is a servant that he's, he's adopted just about like a son, and he says he's a servant, he's from Damascus, and he's the closest thing that I have to an heir. Look at verse 3, and Abraham said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And look at verse 6. This is a crucial verse in all of the Old Testament. Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he, that's the Lord, credited to him as righteousness. You see, we're, we're all bound up in this idea that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament you had to work for your salvation, in the New Testament it was by grace. No, in the Old Testament you still were saved by grace. It's still by faith. It's all the same way. In the Old Testament you look forward to the cross. In the New Testament, since the New Testament, we look back to the cross, but it's all about the cross. And Abraham believed God. Abraham believed the promise that God had given to, to him that God would be his God. God's character never changes. I, I see two things here. Number one, God is stubbornly truthful. God is stubbornly truthful. Now think about this. God promised Abram this heir in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. Abram at the time is 75. His wife is 65. I mean, let's face it. That's really pushing the envelope, thinking about a 75 and a 65-year-old having a child. But, but, you know, 10 years later, now Abram's 85 and Sarah's 75. I, we have some 85 years, 85 year olds here today. How many of you want to have it? No, I, we won't ask you to raise your hand. But think about that. If you're 85, do you want a new baby around the house? Especially one that you have to get up in the middle of the night and, and, and do for? Uh, no wonder Abraham was afraid. God comes back. He still doesn't have the baby. And Abraham's thinking, what's going to happen here? By the way, this is a rare instance. Normally, when God speaks, Abraham acts. Later on, God will say, take your son, your only son, Isaac, who was born eventually to him, and go and offer him on the mountain that I will show you. Abraham never questions God, never talks back to God. But at this point, after 10 years, Abraham says, oh, sovereign Lord. It, it is the word Adonai, master, the one in control. And what does he say? You promised. You promised me this child, I don't have this son. I don't have the one that you've promised me. You ever have to eat your words? Have you ever said something that later on you thought, ooh, I wish I had not said that? You ever have to backtrack? God never has to backtrack. He never has to modify or put a spin on anything that he's ever said. Don't you love it when a politician says something and the next day somebody comes out and corrects what he said? Don't you love that? You remember the first George Bush? Read my lips, no new taxes. That didn't quite work out the way he thought. 
Or I think there was a president that said, I, had, I did not have any sexual relations with this woman, Bill Clinton. We had Richard Nixon, I'm not a crook. Yeah. Or the, my latest, and the one that I love the most is, you can keep your doctor and you can keep your medical insurance, period. You ever had, you know, it's easy to make fun of somebody else. Ever happened to you? My son Chris came to me one time. He was playing in Little League, what I would consider Little League football. He was playing on a little football team in Amarillo, Texas. And he said, Dad, I want you to come to the game this afternoon. And he says, I, you know, you, you haven't been to see me play. And I'd been to a couple of practices, but I really had not been to the game. And I said, oh, Chris, it's a Thursday afternoon. It's so busy. I just can't come today. He said, but you promised. I said, son, I'll come to the next game. He said, Dad, this is the last one of the season. You see, it's easy to point fingers at the politicians, but sometimes it's us. And I took the time off of work that day, and I went to be with my son, and I changed, it changed my life because I changed the focus, and I quit working so much, and I began to focus more on the kids where I should have. Matthew 5.18, Jesus is speaking. Look at what it says. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. It's a jot and a tittle. Not the sm smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Everything that God has promised, everything he promised to Abraham, everything he promised to Isaac, everything he promised all the way through, he, all of those things are still to be uh, achieved. If they've not been achieved yet, they will be achieved. God never breaks his promise. He's stubbornly truthful. Jesus is inviting us to unpack our bags, to settle in, to live a life without worry or without anxiety, without excessive concern, because he can be trusted without any doubts. And he said it to Abraham, and he's still saying it today. And so many times we live life thinking, oh, if God would just act now. Oh, if God would just do this. Oh, if God would just do that. And the Lord says, I can be trusted. Hebrews 13.5 says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And I love that. Then in the Greek, the reason that we translate, it was translated that way into the, into the English is that the first Greek word each time is never, never, never will I leave you. Never, never, never will I forsake you. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, it says, come to me all you who are weary. Got a load today? You, 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 you just you feel like you, you came in with this backpack. You feel like there's something on your shoulders you just can't handle. Do you feel like the pain maybe in your heart is too big and, and you don't know what to do with it? The Lord says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, laden and I will give you rest. God is stubbornly truthful. Number two, God is stubbornly pure. He's stubbornly pure. Why did he pick Abraham? Because he was the... He was the most righteous guy in the world. He was, the, he was the, the, the perfect man. No, he wasn't perfect. Abraham had plenty of problems. He taught his son how to lie. He lied in front of his son so his, his son later would learn to lie like him. He, he didn't always tell the truth. Why did he pick Abraham? Because he, well, because of grace. Why did he pick you? Why did he pick me? Grace. He gave me something I did not deserve. And he did not give me what I really deserved, which is an eternity without him. It's because of grace. Have you ever known someone that, that over a period of time, because of stress, 
because of something that's happened in their life, they began to get bitter or crotchety. Uh, have you ever known someone that, because of the pressure in their life, began to get c- cynical or, or callous? By the way, this is not a good time to look at your spouse in case you're doing that, okay? That's not, that's not. Uh, but, but have you ever known some, and look, some of you did that as soon as I said that. Oh, oh. Have you ever known somebody that? God is infinitely patient with us. Severe strain, shock, catastrophe literally can alter us, but not God. And when Abraham says to him, you know what, Lord, why don't you, I've got Eliezer, why don't you just use Eliezer? Could God have used Eliezer to to form a nation? Absolutely. Later on, Sarah says, hey, listen, it's not working for me. Here's, here's Hagar, and you go in, and you have a child with Hagar, and, and Ishmael is born. Could God have created a nation with Ishmael? Well, in fact, he did, but not his chosen people. Do you understand? God could have used all these other things, but God is stubbornly pure because he has, he has this plan. And God wanted Abraham to trust him. And as a part of that, Abraham was going to have a child when he was 100. 25 years after the promise, he comes back 24 years after the initial promise and says, next year you're going to have this child. And Abraham and Sarah both at different times, they laugh. You know, Sarah's 90. Are you kidding me? The Lord says, I'm not. This is my perfect plan. I'm going to let you have a child when it would be impossible by any reckoning, by any counting, by any physical means. You're going to have a child when it's impossible so you know that I am pure and you can trust me. Margaret Feinberg says this, God is amazingly persistent. He keeps drawing my heart toward the things that are in his heart. And in God's pure heart, he wants to draw us in to his purity. The method of salvation has not changed. He still wanted Abraham to trust him. And he would do whatever it took for him to get to that process. God saves through faith, not by what we do. Why? Because we can never be good enough. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Is that a big deal? It's a huge deal. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter understood this because he hung out with Jesus for three years. And later he writes, but just as he who called you is holy. Who calls us to salvation? God does. Who calls us to salvation? Jesus Christ did. So just as he who called you is holy, perfect, pure, so be holy in all you do. And I've, and I've read commentaries and Bible scholars that that try to kind of soften that up and they try to say, well, what they mean there is to be complete or mature and, and, and that's really, no, God says I want you to be perfect, just like me. Is that a problem for you? Am I the only one that's scared by that? That's terrifying. That's the most terrifying verse in the world except for grace because the Bible, and we sang about it, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 521, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the purity, the righteousness of God. So that when God views me, he doesn't see me, he views me through Jesus Christ and he sees the purity of Christ that's given to me. Now, we're supposed to 
begin to act like that purity is there. We're supposed to begin to act in that pure way. But without grace, we could not do it. God is stubbornly honest and truthful. God is stubbornly pure. And he's all about purifying us. Here's the second thing. I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 18. I want to skip just a little bit and go to the, uh, uh, not the end of the story, but a little later in the story. Because God's character never changes. Also, God's purpose never changes. Years later, Genesis 18, look at verse 9. God comes back to Abraham. And, and he appears there. They're, they're under some trees in Mamre. And, and, and he's talking with them. And there's a meal fixed. And look at what it says in verse 9. God is speaking to, to Abraham. Where is your wife Sarah, they asked him. There's angels there. There in the tent, he said, then the Lord said. The angels are there. And then all of a sudden, the Lord is there and speaking to him. I think he's there the whole time. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah, 99 years old, or I'm sorry, 89 years old, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. Duh, at 89 verse 12 so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought after I am worn out and my master is old will I now have this pleasure then the Lord said to Abram why did Sarah laugh and say will I really have a child now that I'm old is anything too hard for the Lord don't don't skip over that is anything too hard for the Lord I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, and so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Arguing with God, really? Not a good plan. And then it goes on to tell the story of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. God's purpose never changes. God stubbornly plans God stubbornly plans. He plans things that we can't even fathom. And then when, when we begin to, to say, oh, this couldn't be, oh, God, you don't, uh, we know that you don't want this. Oh, sovereign Lord, you promised. Oh, sovereign Lord, you know, what about my son? What about my daughter? What about my family? What about my marriage? What about my health? What about this one who died? What, what about this? And God says, is anything too hard for me? Is anything? I don't know what you're going through today, but the Lord knows, and the the question is still out there. Is there anything too hard for this stubborn God who has planned before the foundations of the world for everything, and he has already made provision for us? Is there anything too hard for him? The answer is no. He can do it. Why make Abraham and Sarah wait so long? Her womb was past carrying a baby, but her heart was not quite ready. God would keep his promise, but they had to get to the point where there were no other options. J.I. Packer says it this way, God still hates the sin of his people and uses all kinds of inward and outward pain and grief 
to wean their hearts from compromise and disobedience. Still he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. Still he teaches the believer to value his promised gifts by making him or her wait for them and compelling each of us to pray persistently for them before he bestows them. God wants to change not just our actions, but he wants to change our, our, our attitudes and the core beliefs that were damaged by sin. Look at what it says in Psalm 33, 11. But the plans, some of the plans of God stand around from time to time. Is that what it says? No. It says, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through most of time. No, through all generations. Somebody asked me this week, do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back again? I said, I absolutely do. And, and they said, why do you believe that? Because John 14, he says, if I go, I will come back. And it says in Thessalonians that we're going to meet him in the air. Is Jesus Christ coming again? Absolutely. Do I believe it? Why? Because he promised it. And all of his plans come true. And I don't know when it's going to happen. There's some days that I pray it's today. 24 years for them to wait is nothing to God. He, it, he took centuries to perfect his plan, and he invites us into that plan. God illustrated the cross literally hundreds of years, 1,500 years. When we were, when we were having this, this communion, this Lord's Supper this morning, do you understand, 1,500 years before that, when Israel had been in bondage for 400 years and they cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent nine plagues and the tenth plague was what? It, it was the death angel that came through and, the, and they said, you have to take a lamb, just the right size lamb, a, a, a certain year lamb, a, a, a perfect lamb without any known blemish or spot and you slit the lamb's throat and you take the blood out of the lamb and you put some of the, the lamb's blood on the, on the side of the door and on the top of the door and it's going to drip down on the, on the threshold but you do that, you have to sacrifice the lamb and 1,500 years later, the Lamb of God came. And they pushed the crown of thorns on his head thinking it was funny, but they, the Lord wanted that blood on the cross. And the blood from his hands dripped down. And he died for us. And we're told in the New Testament, before the creation of the world, God knew that Jesus would die, and he planned it anyway. So don't tell me that God doesn't know what you're going through. He absolutely knows, and his plans are perfect. Number two, God stubbornly loves. God stubbornly loves. If we had just the planning without the love, it wouldn't be enough. Because you see, no matter what happens to us, when that baby's born deformed and doesn't live, when, when you lose that child, when, when, when something happens and, and it doesn't go the way you think, you think God couldn't have a perfect plan because I lost this child, because I, I lost this loved one, because I've got heart disease or cancer. It, it couldn't be a part of the plan. Sin entered into the world. And God was not caught off guard by that. And his love overwhelms the sin. What's the scope of God's love? What is the scope of God's love? How much time do we have? Not much. 
Now, again, J.I. Packer, he wrote the best definition of God's love that I've ever seen. I, I want to unpack it just briefly. J.I. Packer said, God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners. Now think about that. God's love is an exercise of his goodness. It's, it's spiritual, cosmic uh, charity. It, it's things that we don't deserve. It is God's goodness. You think of the best thing that you can ever imagine. We're getting ready to, to some people are going to have some Super Bowl parties, and you'll have some good stuff there. Ribs are good. They're very good. Cherry pie is good. Warm cherry pie with ice cream is very good. You understand, God gives us good things, and you understand that's just the tip of the iceberg because the really good things that God gave us have nothing to do with food. God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners. It's not just this mass. He saw George Knight in Redding, California, and he knew that I needed him, and he individually loved me and you, each one of you. He knows you by name. God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards individual sinners, having identified himself will with their welfare. God identifies with us. Do you, do you get that? He gets down on our level because we couldn't get up to his. All of religion is man trying to seek God. All of Christianity is God reaching down to man. I've said this before. When we go to visit the grandchildren, you'll usually find me on the floor somewhere with one of the kids playing. I've played Legos. I've played Star Wars. I've played games I don't even know the names of, but they wanted to play, and I wanted to get down, and, and, I, and I love them, and I hold them, and I sing to them, and, I, and I, I'll do whatever it takes for my grandchildren to know how much I love them. I, all honor and dignity go away because they need to know my love, and the Lord says, I have identified with you. God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners having identified himself with their welfare. He gave his son to be our savior and now brings us to know and enjoy him in this covenantal relationship. The scope of God's love is that he loved us enough that Jesus Christ died for us. He gave us his son. And now he wants to invite us in to come and spend time with him, to know him, to love him, to, to interact with him, to, have, to enjoy him, to have this relationship that's built on the promise, on the covenant that he made way back with Abraham, and it still continues on to this day into the church and the covenant that we have through Jesus Christ. Do you understand the, the, the huge news you say, well, this is something new, right? Well, look at Jeremiah 31.3. I don't think so. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with loving kindness. Sometimes when we go see the, the grandkids, it's been a while and they haven't seen us and they're a little afraid. They're intimidated by all the baldness on my head, I think is what it is. And, and, I, and sometimes when we go in, when, and I noticed the last couple times, the, the little ones that have been around and they're getting a little older, they follow us in to see us open the suitcase. They want to check out what kind of underwear I have? I'm, I'm not, no, what is it? They know that it's packed with something for them. And they know that we're bringing a little something for them to show that we love them. I've drawn you with loving kindness. 
This week when the snow was happening in the southeast, we were getting pictures from all over the southeast from some of your relatives, from some of our relatives, these little kids playing in the snow. Little kids in Alabama and Mississippi and Tennessee, they thought snow was something that was just this little light dust that they saw and it was only there for 15 minutes and all of a sudden they could make snowmen and they could make snow angels and they could sled down hills and it was just so cute to watch them in this environment that they really had never experienced before. For some of them, it was the first time that they'd seen snow, really experienced snow as this deep freeze hit. Don't you love pictures of babies, of little kids? I love that stuff. A.W. Tozier says, today, this moment, God feels toward his creation, his babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his one and only son into the world to die on the cross for them. Our Heavenly Father loves those babies more than we do. And we are his babies. God is unbelievably stubborn. Let me share a personal story and and I'll close with this. Well, let, let me tell you this story that I heard. There was a 16-year-old boy who had incredible promise in his life. He was a very talented, very bright young man. He fell in love with a girl who was a year older. It was an amazing time for them, and they were both Christians, and yet they did some things they shouldn't have done. And the 16-year-old boy came in to his father one night with his girlfriend and said, She's pregnant. We're Christians. We shouldn't have but we're Christians and we won't abort the baby. The father was devastated. The father was devastated because he could see the future of this, this bright young boy, this, all, all the college that they had planned and all the, the future of this boy just disintegrate and just tumble down. And he didn't know what to do. The girl's parents did not want the girl to get married She graduated from high school when she was about five months pregnant, four months pregnant. She turned 18. He turned 17. The boy and the girl got married, and they had their baby in September, the September of his senior year in high school. The parents allowed, the boy's parents allowed the boy and the girl to come live with them. To spend time over the next seven months, that boy and that girl and that little baby lived in their home. And the baby was allowed. And the boy and the girl, too young to get married, but madly in love, grew closer and began to mature. He graduated the next May. She was a year older. He went off to college because he got a partial scholarship and One of his friend's dads decided that they wanted to help this poor couple out. And so he came to this boy who had this little baby and this girl who had this little baby and said, whatever you need to match between your partial scholarship and the full cost, I will pay six, seven thousand dollars a year for you to go to college. And in four years, the boy graduated. And the little girl grew. And she was so cute. The boy, when he came to the dad, asked for forgiveness, and the father said, there's nothing to forgive. God's already forgiven you. 
But the dad that day had to turn the boy over to the Lord and give him back. You see, I know this story intimately because the boy is my son, Jonathan, our youngest. And the little baby girl that was born is our first grandchild, Ashley, who just turned 16. And God's stubborn love loved them when they sinned and loved them when they turned back to him and still loves him today as he's successful after many years of working hard he's beginning to be successful in the business that he loves and if God's stubborn love can can do that he can do whatever you need him to do would you bow in prayer with me your love is amazing father thank you for being patient and faithful and loving and caring Thank you for never stopping, for never quitting. Thank you, Father, for working in lives that we can't even imagine. And Father, I'm so glad 16 plus years ago I gave my son back over to you and that you've done such amazing things in him. Father, I just thank you that you still want to do great things in us. We're broken. We're sinful. We don't deserve you. It's all about grace. So thank you about being stubborn to apply grace to us. Purify us, Father. Cleanse us. Heal us. Strengthen us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? If you have a spiritual need, you can come and sit on one of these chairs. One of the deacons, one of their wives will sit and pray with you. I would be glad to sit and pray with you. If you have a spiritual need, don't leave. Come today as we sing this song, a little song. It should be the prayer of your heart. Purify my heart.